This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Well, we have talked on this show on several occasions about how income inequality is negatively affecting the U.S. economy. Today, the richest 10% of the population in OECD areas earn nine and a half times more than the poorest 10%. By contrast, back in the 1980s, that ratio stood at about seven to one. But there seems to be a common theme as to why this is a growing problem. To discuss why this is a bigger problem, we are joined by Stefano Scarpata, who is the Director of Employment, Labor, and Social Affairs for the OECD. He joins us on the phone from Paris. And also with us is Joao Gomez, who is a Professor of Finance here at Wharton. Uh, Joao, great to have you here in the studio. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Stefano, great to have you on the phone. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Stefano, I will start with you. From the data collected by the OECD, explain why the gap between uh, the richest percentage of people and the poorest is now at its highest level in about 30 years. Well, indeed, uh, the evidence from our study is that uh, the richer get richer, the poorer get poorer. So the gap between the rich and the poor has been increasing. And this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. Most of three quarters of the OECD countries have seen this uh, phenomenon over the past uh, three decades up to the crisis. And what we have seen in the crisis, especially in some of the countries hard hit by the crisis, was a further increase in income inequality. So it's a pretty widespread phenomenon across a wide range of countries. Of course, the starting point is very different. The U.S. used to have and still has higher level of income inequality than some other OECD countries. You think about the Nordic countries in Europe and so on. But there is a generalized trend increase in most of the countries. What is behind that? Certainly, there is an element of the globalization. We are more integrated economy. Certainly, mm-hmm. there is a factor related to uh, technological progress, which tend to be, in a jargon terms, skill bias. So those with high skill tend to benefit much more than those with relative low level of skills. Mm-hmm. Our economies are becoming more competitive. So for some workers, even for those who have a job, sometimes they do not see really the wage increasing. Sometimes, in some countries, actually, wages have been sliding uh, downward. So there is some general trends, uh, and I think uh, the uh, new evidence in the study we have just released this week is that uh, this is not only a source of concern from a social point of view, but actually should be a source of concern only from an economic point of view, because our study suggests that this increase in income inequality has been detrimental also for long-term economic growth. Basically, if we look at the increase in inequality in the OECD countries, uh, this could explain, over, say, 25 years period, about 8.5% lower economic growth. Mm-hmm. When we look at the U.S. and we look at the growth experience in the U.S. economies over the past two decades, and we look at what could have been if inequality had not increased, basically we have one-sixth less economic growth because of this increase in income inequality. So one of the main messages of our report is actually we really have to care about these uh, increase in income inequality from an economic and a social point of view. And the other perhaps interesting point is that where does it come from, this relationship between uh, income inequality and economic growth? It really comes from inequality in the bottom half 
of uh, the income distribution. So the fact that those at the average or below the average are actually being lagging behind those mm. above the average. And this is not just the poor, so the, top, the bottom 10% is actually the bottom 40% of uh, the income distribution. And if you like, one of the main messages in our analysis is we link that with uh, try to identify what are the mechanisms behind. And mm -hmm. one of the main mechanisms that come up very clearly is the lack of ability of relative low-income family in investing in quality education in mm -hmm. countries with high income inequality. So it's related to the opportunity element, the fact that uh, relatively low-income households have difficulty in investing in not only access to education, but I would say even more quality of education. Are, are you referring to, uh, re when you talk about the quality of education, are you talking about uh, through the high school level, or, or, or are you also referring to uh, just the access to, to quality education, say, at the collegiate level? I think both of them. We look at both access to uh, college univers and university, as well as the outcomes of yep. the education. Uh, we have done a survey of, as you know, the PISA survey about the competence of 15 years old. Yes. But also we are looking now at the competence of those who have left education and are into the labor market. And I think if you look at uh, the latter, what we find very clear is that in high unequal countries, um, individuals coming from a poor socioeconomic background have less access to education in terms of upper secondary, in particular university college education, and also their outcomes at whatever level of education tend to be much lower than those who come from a household of intermediate or higher level of economic, socioeconomic background. So this really points to the fact that inequality is somewhat undermined the potential of many households, many mm -hmm. individuals in relative low socioeconomic background to invest as much as they potentially could, and therefore they contribute less to the economic growth because they cannot really fully invest in their potential and develop their talents. Joao Gomes, uh, you had a chance to take a look at the reports online. I wanted to get your reaction to what the, the OECD has brought forward. Thank you, Dan. Um, it's a very nice report in some ways and uh, obviously addresses a very important issue. I think I would like to make just two or three points. One is it's on it's quite clear I think uh, to most people that inequality has increased within countries um, significantly in the last 20, 25 years, uh, perhaps more so in Europe than even here. Um, what is less mentioned and doesn't come up in this report or anywhere is inequality across countries has decreased enormously. Um, it is true the richer are getting rich in rich countries, but um, if you look across countries, the rich countries are not getting richer, the poor countries are. And if you take a, a more global view of inequality, it actually is decreased, uh, at least um, population-weighted. Um, and I think that's something to think about more carefully as we go forward and as we think so much about policies to deal with uh, reducing inequality. Maybe the two things come together um, because of trade and globalization and things like that. Um, the part of the report that I found a little bit less compelling, and, and as much as we kind of want to agree with, with the conclusions, is, is, is the, the supporting evidence that inequality does reduce growth. It is a little hard to always disentangle these things. It, there's a, you know, causality it does, cannot be inferred from correlation, and, and the study spends some time on this, but, but it's just very hard to, to look at it in, in, a, in a way that just jumps at you that it, this is very convincing that inequality does lead to weaker growth, um, unfortunately. Um, they're just not clear, um, and it's not clear in a number of ways. And, and for example, you know, if you take at face value some of these results, just looking at the study, one of the things that it says is, uh, for example, um, human capital doesn't matter for growth. Education doesn't matter for growth. 
um, investment doesn't matter for growth. You know, if you just literally take, and, and that's just because these studies are very difficult. All these things mm -hmm. come at the same time, and, and it's just hard to find true ways of, of uh, true measures of shocks and institutions and, and maybe preferences. We have a preference for inequality, it seems, in the U.S. relative to Europe. And those true drivers of inequality and growth are just very hard to, to, to identify. So I found that part a little bit less conclusive, and, and I'm hesitant to jump from this to policies that, that go on and, and, and deal with this issue. Um, but the first part is undoubtedly compelling, and, and, and I think we do worry about inequality because it has indeed risen quite a bit, and, and we do worry about having negative effects on growth going forward. We just haven't, I don't think, identified them um, yet on this study or, or other studies uh, that are similar. What is the difference, Stefano, as we look at the report, as you mentioned, some of the, the European countries, especially uh, in the north of Europe, places like Sweden, uh, where uh, the, the ratio of, in, of income inequality is not as high as, say, the United States, and actually Mexico, from the report, it has the, the greatest uh, level of income inequality. Well, indeed. I mean, uh, if you look at the level, uh, certain Nordic countries have a much lower level of income inequality. When you look at the trends, actually, the country in the OECD that has the highest increase in income inequality is Sweden, yeah. from very low level, but has experienced a significant increase over the past uh, two decades. Mexico is a country with high level of income inequality, although before the crisis, inequality were declining. So to some extent, if you like, there's a bit of a convergence to a higher level of income inequality yeah. in many countries. And I think for some of the reasons we've been mentioning, I mean, we are all involved in a process of globalization. There is higher competition. Technical progress tends to be scaled by in that each and every country. I think what makes a difference in the Nordic countries is that they have a very significant um, way to compensate what is a, an increase in market income inequality through redistribution, through a tax system and also to the transfer system, much more than what happened, for example, in countries like the United States mm -hmm. or what happened in a number of other countries. I think Joao was right in the sense that there is also an element of preference, social preference about redistribution, about how much tolerance there is for uh, the level of, uh, of income inequality. I think I agree with that. And to some extent, the transfer, the redistribution system is uh, an explanation, if you like, is a demonstration of this different preference. But I think while I agree with him that it's always difficult with this uh, comparative analysis across countries and over time to clearly identify the effect, I think we have tried all sort of possible type of analysis and the result seems to be fairly robust. It's not the last word, far from that, but yeah. I think it points to an important element of reflection. By no means we have to sort of build policy only on that, but I think it's opening up, in my view, an avenue for further research. And let me say one thing which I found quite important. If you look at the result, both of our study on uh, the 15 years old or of the adults, mm -hmm. what is striking is that in the case of the U.S., for example, not only the level, which in the case of PISA is intermediate, in the case of uh, the adult survey, the level of competence tends to be somewhat lower than the average of the OCD, but it's the huge variation. So there are certainly people with high level of competence, but there are many people with very low level of competence. Yeah. And I think this is a result of the education system that to some extent create a lot of people with high talents, high competence, but also a lot of people that have very low level of competence. And for them, it is very difficult to find jobs, to find the rewarding and productive jobs into our economies that are becoming more and more competitive, precisely because they are involved in a, blo in a global context. I, I think going forward, that's absolutely a, a great concern. I completely agree with Stefan. 
Um, I'm less sure that that's what happened in the past, given that countries have, uh, some, many of these OECD countries in this report have accomplished enormous progress in, in terms of secondary and post-secondary education. And I, I find that it's unlikely that uh, we've had seen these, these uh, um, increased in, in inequality translate into difficulty in accessing education and thus growth. But going forward, it's absolutely right. And I think as we see inequality rise, I think that is the concern we have. And this is this is exactly the kind of question we want to answer with this, with these types of studies. Does this, is this really going to harm growth going forward? And, and we have to worry a lot about it. Because, and to me, I think the, the thing that I'm most concerned about is the fact that as we increase globalization and, and, and we increase the skill premium for, for sort of talent, um, that the more and more people need to share into this success story that has yeah. increasingly become concentrated. And, and I think, you know, if we are going to, say, liberalize trade, and, and which I think is the essence of growth for the next 50 years, we need the majority of people to benefit from this and to support these policies. And, and, and in that sense, why, um, allowing an inequality to widen too much, too far, uh, it really harms uh, our growth prospects. I, I think going forward, those are the things that I wish, the, that I worry a lot about. Um, I just don't know how to measure them exactly, and I, and I think this is a, a good way to th start thinking about it, but I'm not sure it's um, it's the definitive point. In fact, I am sure it's not the definitive point. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney with you. We're talking with Joao Gomez, who is a finance professor here at Wharton, and also Stefano Scarpata, who is the Director for Employment, Labor, and Social Affairs for the OECD. So, uh, Stefano, if, if education, uh, especially improving it at the, at the lower levels uh, in, in terms of, uh, of the people that are involved, it is so important. How do we get that started? How, how does that really take hold to pass this information on to them to understand the, the, trail, the true correlation between economic growth or whatever level of economic growth we're talking about and education uh, at a secondary level? I think this is a challenge for all countries. Then uh, how to tackle that, of course, varies depending on the country. I think we really have to start earlier on. I think there is a lot of evidence that suggests that early childhood education and care matters a lot. So really invest even in very young uh, children because that's really when some of the important building blocks of uh, the education process actually are made. Of course, it means uh, access, as we discussed before, but also improving the quality of some institution those educational outcomes are very poor. And they reduce to some extent the inequality that for those, again, with a low socioeconomic background have in accessing quality education. It means also investing more in community college. So I think depending on the country, there's a number of building blocks of the education system that have to be reconsidered mm -hmm. exactly, not only, again, in the comparative analysis across countries, more to try to reduce this huge variation that exists in educational outcomes in most countries, but I would say particularly in the United States and a number of other countries. But let me say one thing which is important. We are talking about uh, technological progress, which is skill bias. We are looking yep. at a, a period in which the technology will advance for sure, but certainly will require more and different type of competences. So I think uh, while there is a certainly a big agenda to improve the outcomes of our education system. There is another important uh, element that is how do we skill and reskill those already into the labor market? What skill might no longer be adapt to the demand, to the way in which the economy is evolving? This is an even bigger challenge, if you like, because again, when you look at the, our result from our survey of the competence of the adult, here we are looking at 16 to 65 years old, mm -hmm. again, you see an even larger variation of actual competences. Here we are looking at literacy, numeracy, problem-solving skills, some of the basic foundation skills that are needed 
in order to succeed in our economy, in our labor market. There you see a huge variation. And some of this variation is because some of those who have left education 10, 20 years ago have not seen their skills actually adapting to the way in which the economy is evolving. So I think there is another bigger challenge, which is even more complicated, to train and retrain or adapt the skills of those oh. already into the labor market. How do we do that? Well, this has to be a partnership between some public intervention, but also the private sector. Companies have to invest more on the skills of their workers, possibly moving from a short-term in a medium-term perspective of the human capital dimension. And I think, Joao, we've talked about that a little bit here in the United States as one of the reasons maybe to be able to get uh, the unemployment numbers down even lower than they are right now is that to, to take the people that you already have within the companies and repurpose their skills for jobs that uh, maybe they haven't done for you know the 15 or 20 years that they've worked for a company, but repurpose them, keep them on staff, and make them valuable going forward. I think that's absolutely right, Stefano, hint on, uh, on a lot of uh, important things. I, I completely agree. I think the one thing that comes out of studies like this is that uh, just across the board standard increasing educational achievements are not really going to do it. We have to do these targeted policies. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I completely agree. I think it's about uh, repurposing people and training them at later stages um, in response largely to shocks to just change how what sorts of things they need to do to be successful in, in, in the world 20 years from now. And, and I think we'll be talking about lifetime education being a much more important part of, of, uh, of people's lives and, and, and even universities like us. But, um, well, well, we talk about it, about it here in the United States, but, but you're from Portugal. Obviously, yeah. Spain ha has gone through an unbelievable amount of turmoil. What, what is the situation like in places like Spain, uh, or, or Stefano, you as well, in places like you know Italy that, uh, that have suffered major economic strife and have uh, just high, high levels of unemployment? Is that type of repurposing going on in locations like that? The short, from maybe Stefano wants to answer first. The short answer is no, uh, no. Although the unemployment is largely concentrated at, at youth levels, but but uh, long-term unemployment, if you look at um, age fifty and, and older, is just basically, um, you know, it's just very high, and it just doesn't doesn't end. Those spells just don't end. Those people just don't get um, trained for anything else, and they just stay unemployment pretty much until retirement age. Um, so the short answer is no. This is just something the European countries have been very good at. Um, there, there's a lot of other issues in Europe with employment protection and so on, but and the crisis has been more severe. But uh, but the short answer is no. It's something that no country does very well, I don't think. But mm -hmm. uh, but we certainly do a little bit better job here than than the Europeans do. Stefano, no, I fully agree with you. I mean, if you look at the situation overall, and especially for young people in a number of southern European countries, it's really really worrisome. I mean, the unemployment rate in Spain uh, for youth is above 50%, which is something unheard, uh, I think, in countries like the U.S. In Italy, my country is 43%. And these are only those who are still looking for jobs, because there are many other young people who are not connected with education and not even looking for jobs, because they think there are no jobs for them. Yeah. And I think the problem uh, in countries like Spain in particular, where there was a burst of the house price bubble, is that uh, that country lost about a quarter of total employment in construction. And yeah. these jobs are not going to come up uh, anytime soon. So many of these workers have to relocate, find another job in another sector. So there, the challenge of uh, basically training and retraining these workers for different type of jobs is massive. At the time in which, of course, also there are still persistent large fiscal imbalances in which, of course, uh, public resources for this kind of training and retraining program 
are limited. So that's why I think the private sector is now chipping in, is getting on board to try to provide some sort of training and retraining, and also to promote what is very famous and very successful in other countries like Germany, to promote apprenticeship. So basically to yeah. train young people on the job by offering them some on-the-job and in-classroom type of training as an entry point into, into, into the labor market. The, the loss of growth from the report in the United States, if, if you use the numbers that, uh, that, that you refer to, was probably about, I guess, 6 to 7% over the course uh, of, the, uh, of the report, which I guess went from 1999 to 2010. Uh, yeah. but, but how much of that loss uh, was set in stone because of the inequality, and how much of it, if, if you're able to, to parse it out, uh, was tied to the recession that, that the U.S. went through in 2007-2008? Well, that's a fair point. Actually, we look at the, the increase in inequality before and then the impact on subsequent growth, and much of the period we cover is actually up to the beginning of the, of the recession. It's not yeah. really looking into the recession. And I think, I mean, with the limits of this type of analysis, we try to disentangle what was sort of short-term effect, including the crisis, from the more longer-term trend, including, of course, uh, the, role of, uh, the role of inequality. So this is really, you know, taking into account different factors, is what can be associated within this type of analysis to the rise in inequality, over and above all the other factors that certainly play the role in driving economic growth. So the U.S. had significant economic growth over that period of time. It would have been even higher if it was not because there was uh, some increase, uh, uh, some significant increase in income inequality. And let me say one thing which I think is important, because in our study we look at the distribution of income for the entire population. What we don't really capture very well is what happened at the very top end of the distribution, so the yeah. famous 1% or even the 0.1%. Because for that, you need a different type of data like, you know, Thomas Piketty and others have looked at. Yeah. When you look at the data for the U.S., it's pretty astonishing. As you know, um, the top 1% now accounts for about 20% of the total pre-tax income mm -hmm. in 2012. Uh, this was 8% in the 80s. So there's been a huge increase in the share of pre-tax income that is now going to the very top 1%. And this is much more than what you find in a number of other countries. This is not capturing, if you like, in our analysis, but it certainly is one factor that altogether explains the trend increase in income inequality. Has Dean been a factor that's led to you know, higher growth? I don't know. But my sense is that part of that uh, is, may not have contributed enough to, to, to economic growth. Well, what about you brought up the, the, the taxing system that, that a lot of countries uh, would would like to even increase in terms of that top one percent. Obviously, it's been talked about here in the United States and, and hasn't been pushed forward. Uh, in fact, there's been a lot of pushback in, in Capitol Hill. But certainly, uh, that's a that's an idea that you would think, even if it is cutting back on the number of of deductions that 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 top one percent have, would be something that would be able to to add some growth. I don't know how much. But, but it's an idea that a lot of people have thrown about. I, I wonder if it's something that really can be pushed forward in the next, uh, you know, in the next decade or so, Stefano. The discussion on tax is always complicated. Uh, and, of course, it varies a lot from one country to the other. I mean, on the one hand, you might think that there has been a significant decline in the U.S., but basically most of the OECD countries on the marginal tax rate. Now, if the increase in inequality is largely concentrated in the top 1%, raising the marginal tax rate will not really help you very much until you have to arrive to that 1% and you are going to affect many more people on the way. But I think there are many other ways, closing the loopholes in the tax code, 
uh, reduce and eliminate the exemption and so on and so forth. There are a number of other things that basically could be tackled. Mm -hmm. uh, and this would possibly contribute to making sure that those at the very top end of the distribution pay a fair share of the tax system. So I think that has to be done really country by country. But there are different ways in which you can uh, improve the tax system, making sure that everybody pays a fair share of their taxes, and eliminating, reducing all these loopholes, uh, exemptions, and so on and so forth, that certainly do not benefit those at the lower end of the income distribution. The U.S. has done a lot, for example, to increase the earned income tax credit, which is a conditional tax reduction for those in employment. And this has encouraged people to work, to come into the labor market, to be in employment, and to some extent also help them increase their take-home pay, so their income after tax and benefit. So I think each country has to find its own way, but I think uh, we have to reconsider the tax system in its entirety and also access to um, public services, which I think is another important uh, uh, avenue, if you like, for improving the effectiveness of the redistribution system. So I don't think we are talking about increasing taxes in general, but also improving the tax system, tax code, to make it more effective and more fair. Yeah. I agree with many things Stefano say. I just uh, taken at face value, the report numbers suggest that it's really the bottom part of income distribution and, and inequality of that uh, that part of distribution that really matters for growth. And I, I don't take it at face value, as I said, but, but if I do, the report only substantiates that we should help um, the less uh, wealthy or, or lower-income individuals have access to education in particular. That's the part that is stressed. There's nothing there about, and, and this is really what it gets to be problematic to, to, to talk about taxes um, at the higher. I mean, I think it's one thing to talk about education policies. To talk about tax policy and distribution policy is a totally different issue. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, you know, ex explicitly that is rejected, although, as Stefano pointed out, there's no data about the impact of the top 1%, but, but really at the top level, um, if anything, it's it's at best mixed, right? Um, so I, I think, you know, to stay within the recommendations here, if you trust all the results and, and put a lot of weight into them, um, when I think a lot of them are preliminary, I think you, you really want to focus on the education part first. There are some issues about how to fund that and where the revenues come up, and, and then the discussion gets a little bit broader. But, um, but I would stay with that, and I think it's important to emphasize that. Gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for coming on and, and talking about this. Stefano, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Joao, you. great to have you here in the studio. Thank you very much. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.